sermon passage comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malone and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me as we look at God's word this morning. Holy Father, we look to you dependent on your spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds to the truths that lie within this ancient text. May you encourage our spirits. May you turn us from sin and may you draw us to yourself by the power of your spirit working in these words. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. So this morning, we're going to begin what will be around a three-month journey through the book of Ruth. This book of Ruth will take us right up to the season of Advent for us. And, and this sermon will serve a little bit more as an introduction than what you're probably used to in exploring some of the, the main themes that we're going to find in the book. But it's also going to, we're going to find that some of those main themes that are in the entire book of Ruth are actually found in these first seven verses. And so before we dive into the text this morning, we really need to understand the context, especially of the book of Ruth, or we're going to miss a lot of what's happening here. And whenever we come to a book of the Bible or any passage of scripture, really the, the first question we need to ask ourselves is where does this story come to us in the full story of redemption, which is scripture? Where at in that story of redemption does uh, the book come? And and so as a, it's a quick summary, this is the, the eighth book uh, of the Bible. And the first five books of the, of the Bible are, are written by Moses and given to the people of God right before they enter into the promised land. And we call those first five books the, the Pentateuch. And just a couple of important highlights of that first five books that kind of lead us to where we are um, is that one of the things that God does is he reveals himself to be a covenanting God. First with Adam and Eve, and then as they're kicked out of the garden, he, he creates more covenants with his people. And, uh, and, and covenants are ways that God actually pursues his people, despite their running away from him. This, it's one of the ways that he runs towards his people. And, you know, if I could simply define a covenant for you in one sentence, when books upon books have been written about this topic, um, I would say it's simply a, a relational oath between God and his people 
And this is something that carries blessings when, when obedience happens and curses when there's disobedience. And this will be a, a theme that we're going to find because uh, right now at the beginning of Ruth, what we're going to find is, is that they're actually experiencing covenant curses due to their disobedience, which we will get to more later. But after Genesis, and we get to see who, what kind of God he is, you know, at the end of Genesis, they find themselves in, in Exodus. And then in Exodus, is this beautiful story where God's people are taken out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're being taken to the promised land, the land that was promised to, to Abraham and, and the covenant with Abraham. God is finally going to do that. He's going to take his people and put them in that long-awaited land. And the, the last a book of the Pentateuch is, is a book called Deuteronomy, and it's kind of Moses' final sermon to the people right before they enter this promised land. They've been waiting years upon years, generations to get there, and now they're finally there. Moses gives us this last sermon. He dies, and then we get the book of Joshua, and Joshua courageously leads his people into that land. They take hold of the promised land, that long-awaited blessing of, of land that's fruitful, that's flowing with milk and honey. It's finally theirs. And Joshua is this beautiful story of how they, they, they actually take hold of it. And then we get the book of Judges. And uh, Judges would, will be a fun book to go through at, at some point in our history. I'm not quite ready to do that to you all yet. But when you read through the book of Judges, Judges is probably the messiest, most uncomfortable book in all of Scripture. When you read some of the stories there, you have to ask yourself the question, are these really God's people? How could they possibly act the way they act? It is uncomfortable. And it's the book of Judges. That's where Ruth comes to us. Likely at the end of the season of Judges is where God comes to us. And just so quick, you know, Judges, they, had, they didn't have kings in the land yet. And so they had these little chieftains, these rulers that would, would rule and govern areas. And they were good ones and bad ones and had these cycles of disobedience and obedience and very bad things happened. And the last of the judges was actually Samuel. And we're reading through 1 Samuel as a church. But Samuel is the last of the judges and he kind of ushers in the era of the king. And it's a golden era, sort of. But it's a lot better than judges was. And so in between judges, you know, the, this messiness of judges and kind of the ushering into this new thing with the kings, you find Ruth. And Ruth acts as a bridge for us, sandwiched between these two books. It leads us from the wickedness of Judge into the glory of Samuel. And, and you probably have read Ruth, so I'm not going to, hopefully this isn't a spoiler for you, but Ruth is actually the, the great-grandmother of King David. And so you get this bridging of these two worlds happening here. And a big theme that's echoing through the book of, of Ruth, the same one that echoes throughout all of Scripture, is that God is a steadfast God. That even though his people act wickedly, even though his people run from him, God is the God that never runs from his people. And maybe more than that, it's a story where the people who are supposed to act with dignity act wickedly, and the main character, Ruth, from Moab, who we would expect to act wickedly, ends up acting with great honor. And so not only is God faithful, despite our faithlessness, but he makes the faithless to be faithful as well. Not only is God faithful, but he makes the faithless to be faithful as well. This is good news for us. And so as we begin diving into this ancient masterpiece, this amazing book, we're going to set the story up this morning by just talking about two things. It doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon 
but it's, we're going to talk about two things this morning. The first thing is uh, a faithless people and an ever-faithful God. We're going to talk about a, faithful, uh, a faithless people and an ever-faithful God. So first, uh, a faithless people. You know, our first clue that something is wrong in Ruth is that there's a famine in the land. We see this in verse 7. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, verse 1 says. And we're going to get into this topic a little bit more when we speak about God's faithfulness. But to a Jewish person reading Ruth, when they read that there was a famine in the land, they would immediately know that there was judgment in the land. Judgment because of disobedience. You know, Deuteronomy 28, which, by the way, we're going to be going, looking a lot in, at Deuteronomy. In fact, if you wanted to do some extra homework this afternoon, read the end of Deuteronomy, even just from Deuteronomy chapter 28 to the end, and you'll find a lot of overlapping things happening here. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses tells the people that if they disobey, he's going to curse them. And one of the things is the, the ground's not going to be fruitful anymore. And so how should Elimelech just like all of Israel, respond when they notice that there's a famine in the land? Well, actually with repentance. You know, after Moses 28, you get Moses 29 and then 30. And in Moses 30, he tells them that, listen, when you return to me and repent, I will be quick to forgive, quick to bless. And this is the purpose of discipline in general, right? We discipline our children so that they return, so that they can be blessed. But what does Elimelech do? Does he do the thing he's supposed to do? No, he, he runs, he leaves. He leaves the promised land, that long-awaited land that they had to wait so long to get into, and they finally made it. He leaves it. I mean, it's really hard to put into words how offensive this act is. I think for us, when we see him leaving, it seems like this is a good thing. It's like, well, you don't have food here. You have food there. So yeah, it seems like a good idea, but that's not what we have happening here in the Old Testament. And I think we begin to catch an idea of just how big of a deal this is, by looking at what the names of these towns mean, Bethlehem is this compound word that means bread basket. It's this bread basket that God has given to his people, and Moab means the land of, of no father. And so he's leaving the promised land, the, the bread basket given to them by God, to, to the land of no father. And why does he do this? Well, it's the same reasons why we run from the discipline of God. He didn't want to repent at the end of the day. Why didn't he want to repent? Because I, he didn't trust God. He didn't trust that God would actually provide, and ultimately, his leaving is a rejection of Yahweh. And in fact, when you read like rabbinic scholarship on, on Elimelech, they have created this whole story, which is probably not true, but it's kind of fascinating, this whole story about how evil Elimelech was. Uh, and this is where we remember that this land was land promised to Abraham. It's supposed to be the new Eden. It's supposed to be the place where God's presence resides. And it's meant to be the place that God's presence not just resides, but actually flows into the rest of the world. And so in leaving this place, he isn't just looking for food elsewhere. He isn't just taking a new job. He is leaving the very presence of God. And this point is driven home even further when we consider where he went looking for food. You know, Moab. Moab was an enemy of Israel. Their quick history is that they come from the incestuous line of Lot that we find in Genesis. And most recently in the story of Scripture, when God's people were trying to come into the land, into the promised land, the Moabites actually denied them entry into the land. They called curses. They actually hired 
uh, Balaam. This is where the story ba- Balaam and his donkey come to us. But they, they hire Balaam to, to cast curses upon Israel's people. And even in recalling the events uh, in Deuteronomy 23, Moses actually doubles down on Moab being their enemy. They were viewed as godless people, vile people. They represented everything that God didn't want his people to look like. But they had green grass, so what do you expect from him? So they go. Elimelech should know better. He's supposed to be the head of his family. He's supposed to be the one that's the hero. I mean, his name means my God is king. And yet he follows the mantra of the day. The mantra that you find throughout the book of Judges, the mantra that Judges ends with, which is that there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So Elimelech, that is supposed to submit himself to his king, submits himself to himself. But their faithlessness actually doesn't end there. In verse 2 to 3, we see here Elimelech dying. We're talking more about his death later, but when he dies, that should be a sign that they should return. Right, the curses touch their family. But what do they do? Verse 4 tells us, But these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. They took Moabite wives. You know, Deuteronomy 7.3 tells us that intermarriage between foreigners uh, and Israelites was forbidden. And this was actually most strongly worded against Moabites because, again, of the curse that they hired for them. So this was actually fairly present history for Israel. And the reason why God didn't want intermarriage to happen wasn't because he was racist. It had nothing to do with ethnicity at all. It was because of their religion. You know, when we intermarry between different religions, we adapt uh, foreign gods, and he didn't want this for his people. Yet their faithlessness here, their lack of trust in God to provide in the promised land led them to go their own way, and the sons ended up following the father's footsteps. It says they took wives, and they stayed. Notice that there's a a descent happening here in our text. It began as a sojourn, right, A, a temporary thing. And then it says they remained there, and now they're establishing a life there. Ten more years they were here. And what happens? More death. I mean, isn't this how sin ends up working in our own lives? It starts as this temporary descent, uh, and then it turns into a, a pattern, and before you know it, you've kind of moved into your, to your sin, you've made it your home. And it's not just the, you know, the big ticket things, you know, substance abuse, and those are the easy ones to talk about, but we do it with our own greed, don't we? We're a little greedy, and it slowly seeps into our lives, and we give ourselves over to it. We do it with slander. We do it with gossip. We do it with all these things where we allow ourselves a little room, and then we move into these sins. And where does sin always lead but death, right? Romans tells us the wages of sin is death, and they are experiencing the heaviness because of their disobedience of life outside the land of God. Uh, you know, I've been reading the Psalms a lot this month. In Psalm 16, I came to uh, this last week, and it says this in Psalm 16:4 that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. They are experiencing that in their lives. The great sorrow because of chasing after other gods, and all of a sudden, this story of Ruth is set up maybe a little differently than what you've read at first glance. You see a, a wicked, faithless people running from God and all the things that he has given them, clinging to their sin. And how does God respond to this vile faithlessness? 
How does God respond to, to their faithlessness when they follow the mantra that I have no king and, and they're doing what is right in their own eyes, which, by the way, is probably a great mantra that could define our culture's mantra of the day. How does God respond to this? With steadfast love. He responds by being faithful to them, by loving them. And this is kind of the incredible move that we see here. In the, in the midst of a faithless people, what we find is an ever-faithful God. An ever-faithful God. And how do we see this in this text? Well, before we jump to some of the more obvious things that we see in verses 6 and 7, I want us to first consider how God is actually being faithful and loving in the first five verses. And the first thing that we notice in the first five verses is that his discipline is actually a sign of his faithfulness. Your discipline is actually a sign of love. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us that the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. So what does it mean for God to be faithful and loving, but to do what he says he's going to do? And so the first place we see faithfulness, we're here, is in the discipline of God. And the curses that God said that he would put on his people if they didn't disobey finally happened here. First, as we said, there's a famine He removed the fruitfulness of the land. The very thing he promised to Abraham is removed. And he allowed Elimelech and his sons to die outside the promised land. And here it seems like he caused Ruth and Orpah to actually be barren. You know, they were married for 10 years without children. And this time there was no such thing as family planning. Right? No one waited to have children in this day. You know, to be married was your family planning. And to not have children in this day would mean that something is wrong. And if we think about all the things that God had promised to Abraham in his covenant, like a land, people, blessing, and now because of their disobedience, God has removed all three of these things from his people. God has removed all three of these things from his people. And a part of us can read this and say, man, this seems, this seems really harsh, doesn't it? But consider first the warnings that he had given them. The famine should have been the first sign for them to repent. Right, the death of their father should have caused them to turn around and return home. Them not being able to bear children should have been a hint to them that they need to come back to the land of God. And then finally, after 10 years of not listening, the sons die too. And it's not until that point that they finally turn and come back. One of the things this tells you is that God is a long-suffering God. He is actually slow to anger. And he warned them this would happen, yet they did not listen. But because God is a God of his word, he does what he says he will do. But he doesn't do this for fun. He he disciplines his children so that they will return. He never does what is more necessary than he needs to to return his children to himself. It's why we discipline children. It's why we practice church discipline. Not to, to not discipline someone would actually be a sign of hate, not love. God is faithful. God is loving, so God disciplines his children. God's faithfulness, though, doesn't end in discipline. But his discipline actually is the very thing that ends up restoring them. We see this in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. They finally return. And this word is significant here because the word return is the same word that's used for repentance. She is saying, enough is enough. 
I will come back. In, this, in the text, it's, she's not just coming back for food. She's coming back to the God who feeds. Coming back isn't, isn't just to the land. Ultimately, coming back is coming back into the presence of God, repenting, returning. Because God had visited the people. It says Yahweh had come. The Lord there is his, his actual name, Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh had visited his people. And she wanted to again be in the presence of Yahweh. And it seems as if the people themselves had actually crawled out to God and he had heard their cry and he had made their land faithful again. And then in verse 7, we see the word return happen again. So she sent out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Another kind of subtext thing that's happened is Moab is actually east of where they are. And so in scripture, whenever you find someone going east, they're actually always going away from God. When it points out someone going east, they're always moving away from God. And to go to God is to go west. And so there's a lot of things, imagery happening here that show us that they are finally returning to the Lord. And that although the people try to run from God, what we learn is that God does not abandon his people. Although they have broken the covenant, his discipline was but for a moment. You know, Psalm 30 tells us that his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. You can't outrun the love and favor of God. God is the God who restores his people. And that same God is the God that restores us as well. God is the ever faithful God. And what makes this point even stronger is that this same cycle of disobedience, curse, restoration is going to happen again and again and again. They're going to disobey, and eventually, you know, both the northern and southern kingdoms are actually exiled out of this land, and the temple's destroyed, and yet they return again. And actually, in Deuteronomy 30, at the beginning, Moses even tells them that this will happen. He tells them, listen, you are actually going to disobey again. You're actually going to get expelled out of this land. But when you return to me, I will return to you, and I will bring you back to the land, and I will give you hearts of flesh, he tells them. So what do we do with this cycle that's inevitable, even within our own lives, our own disobedience? What do we do with this? One of the points here is that there's nothing you can do. I mean, this really reveals our inability to follow God, to do the things that he has called us to do. We are the covenant breakers. But God being rich in mercy, being the ever faithful loving God, comes and breaks that cycle for us. And in this, we find that he sends Christ to bear the covenant curses for us on our behalf. Our disobedience, which should end in actually death for us, should cut us off from the land, should give us barren land and wombs, all of that gets placed onto Christ. This is incredible. Galatians 3, 13 through 14 says this. Paul actually says this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, what he is describing here is nothing short of miraculous. The covenant keeping of Christ becomes our covenant keeping. His righteousness, right living, becomes our righteousness and right living. So we get the covenant blessings, not because of our goodness, but because of Christ. And Jesus takes on himself the covenant curses, not because of his disobedience, but because of ours. 
And just like things are a little bit backwards and upside down in this story in the gospel, we find the upside down world. The innocent one is the one who has his life taken that we and him can have life. And what makes this such good news is this doesn't depend on you. You didn't have to die for yourself, but Christ has done that for you. This is the steadfast, faithful love of God on display. It is relentless. It's not hesitating. It never fails. It never runs out. This is what makes it good, isn't it? This is what gives us hope. Because we run out all the time. This afternoon we're going to run out. Downstairs, you know, when we're eating dinner, we're going to run out of patience for each other, probably for me. And that's okay because Christ never runs out of patience for you. This is amazing news. He will do whatever it takes to bring his people to himself. Now, as a quick aside, you know, one thing that can be tempting for us, being New Testament Christians in America, as we read the Old Testament, is we can apply this kind of wrongly in our day. We can look at this and say, okay, when, when bad things happen, when war breaks out, when people die, when I can't have a child, that means God is cursing me. God is doing this to me because of my disobedience. And I just want to point out that is actually not true. It is possible God could punish us in certain ways, being his people. But the, way, the reason why we know it's happening is because God tells us it's happening in Scripture. We don't get any new special revelations that God says, listen, I'm going to punish this land because of their evil actions. Christ actually took all the covenant curses upon himself, all of them. doesn't mean that God doesn't still dis, you know, discipline his people when we walk away, but our consequences tend to be more the natural consequence types. And when you sin, you get removed from the body of Christ. And this is what you find in the Old Testament. Discipline means you get removed from the body, you get removed from the table so that you will recognize you are lacking and return to him. And so we have to be careful in how we apply these things. God took all the covenant curses upon himself. If you are experiencing barrenness, it's not because of the covenant curses. It's because we live in a fallen world. This is not your fault. If we, as a country, or our land gets invaded and we lose everything that we have, it's not because of covenant curses. It's because we live in a fallen world and Christ has not yet set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we can trust this faithful God. And so the, I think the primary application of this text is to marvel at, at God, to marvel at his steadfast love, that no matter all the vilest things that we read about and judges cannot thwart his mission, his love for his people. This should give you hope. It should cause you to turn to him because of his deep, profound love for you. And then secondly, it should cause us to ask the question, where are you trying to be your own king in your own life? Where are you trying to be the king in your life? Where are you not submitting to Christ the king and just looking and doing what is right in your own eyes? Where is your own sin causing pain not just to you but to the community that God has placed you in, into your families, into your households, into your church body? May we be a people who are quick to turn when we're confronted with our sin. May we be a people who don't test God's long-suffering nature, but who are quick to rest in the steadfast, faithful love of God. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We are utterly astonished 
by your love that is otherworldly, by your love that makes no sense in our human terms, but we are thankful for it nonetheless. May we rest upon it. May we lean into it, even when we don't understand it. May we stop trying to, to hold the line ourselves, but may we trust you and trust the community that you've placed us in. Guide us by the power of your spirit working in this body, by the, by the power of Christ, we pray. Amen.